On today's show, we're talking all things AI. We're talking about the tipping points of AI, talking about how ChatGPT4 is getting worse. And at the very end of the show, we're talking about the future of websites in an AI world. So you're gonna wanna stick around for that. We're doing it all with a very special guest. I'm joined today by Linus Eckencham, who is a designer, a marketer, and AI Twitter aficionado. And he brings some amazing insights today. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner, CMO at HubSpot. I am joined by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO at Zapier. And this is Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. Let's get into today's episode. If you're a startup and you have big growth dreams, you need the right CRM platform. That's HubSpot. I want to tell you all about HubSpot for startups. It's our program where you can get up to 90% off your HubSpot subscription. You need to increase leads. You need to boost revenue. You need to improve your customer's experience. HubSpot for startups helps with all of that. Plus, you'll get 24-7 customer support and integrations from more than 1,500 of today's most popular apps. I almost forgot. There's a complete collection of amazing resources to help you learn and get better at your craft. HubSpot is trusted by some of the best startups in the world and is used by over 200,000 customers around the globe. To see if you're eligible to join the HubSpot for Startups program and take your growth to the next level, visit HubSpot.com startups. So first of all, you are doing AI stuff. Like, give us the lay of the land. Like, what the hell are you actually doing? Spend your time on right now? Because so, it'll kind of guide the rest of the show. So it'll be super interesting. All right. What do I do? Like, this is a very tricky question. <laughs> Up until last year, I had a fixed position as like the principal designer at flowdesk.com, which is an email marketing platform okay. like competing with MailChimp. But then I left to kind of go and, and chase my own endeavors and started to talk a lot with friends that were building things with GPT-3 and we were testing a bunch of things out and then me and my partner and then another friend that we've been building tools with before, we kind of sat down and just say like, what's the lowest hanging fruit that we could build to kind of learn these things? Like what do we need to do to kind of like get our hands dirty? And we built a story generator for kids. So that's been kind of my main focus, like building that out. But then, you know, this thing just exploded and I've been doing a bit of everything. So <laughs> a friend that had an AI startup for four years reached out and asked if I would want to take the role as the CMO to help them kind of like help get acquired. So I did that for half a year. And now I am finding myself in a bit of a strange situation where I'm like part edutainer on Twitter and I'm educating people about <laughs> AI and posting and doing all sorts of things just to try to like stay relevant. But I'm also kind of building my own things and like, you know, starting to seriously look into like, what are the ramifications of everything that's happening around us, right? Like this is not a, at least in my opinion, this is not a fad right? AI won't just disappear. Yeah. So in short, you know, I'm doing a bit of everything, bits and bobs in and around AI and, and design and trying to crystallize like where I'll end up by the end of the year. So one of the things I think we wanted to cover on today's show was the tipping point we all realized where we went from like AI interested to AI all in, mm. you know, and you're a builder, you're somebody who has always made things like when was the moment you were like, oh, I'm kind of banging around, I'm learning some stuff to like, oh God, like this is the future and I need to spend as much of my time as possible learning this new technology. September, October and November last year was paramount. Like the stuff that I 
experienced and learned and kind of like the aha moments I had, not was this, it wasn't a singular event. It kind of happened over the course of these three months where I did things in like matter of hours that previously had taken weeks and I learned quicker and I could argue with, you know, an entity that wasn't like a person. And that argument would lead to better outputs. It would lead to me, you know, getting a different lens on things. And that was the same kind of instance that also helped me code. And I'm not a coder by trade. I'm not a full stack code. I know I I can look at code and I can understand how it works and I can write a few things. But like with the help of AI, all of a sudden I could make a complete concept, right? I could take it from zero to actually working. Maybe it's not the most beautiful code, but it works. And I think throughout kind of those three months, I had enough of those experiences where I'm like, holy cow, like this is not just going to change my life, obviously, because I'm doing these things now and it is changing the way I'm working. This is going to touch everyone's lives. Like it doesn't matter if you work in a bank or if you work in a tech startup or if you work at a pharmacy, like these tools will become so omnipresent that they will be everywhere. And that's when I started to share things on Twitter. I'm like, you know, I'm learning this. This is how you can do the same, you know, and this is how you can leverage this. And I think when I started to share and I started to get like traction on this, it was just like, okay, this is, you know, there's no stopping this now. The genius out of the bottle is just going to ride this wave. Kieran, like what was it for you? You and I have been on this journey together, but like, I I don't know that I'm sure like when it really like clicked for you too. Well, Kip, or should I say Kip, Barbie girl living in a Barbie world, life is plastic, is fantastic. You like my my pink shirt, man? If you're you're listening to the RSS, go hit us up on YouTube. I got the pink shirt, hit subscribe on YouTube. For me, I think when people first got to experience it through ChatGPT, like the interesting thing about ChatGPT is it really was just a wrapper on top of like APIs that had existed, but the UX had made it much more easier for like broad study people to use. And I think that was like the mind blowing part for most people. Mm-hmm. I've really been on board that like it's the speed of learning and iteration. It's what really surprised me within even the first week of using ChatGPT is this is potentially a better experience than like a Google, right? And the Google has been out for many, many years and like, wow, mm. this has only been out for a week. And I'm actually <laughs> using this in a way where it's much better. It feels much better and more kind of like a way that I would want to like retrieve information, learn things, have quick iterations and be able to go back and forth with something versus like clicking back and forth on links. And I will say that over the past week, I've really begrudgingly been using Bard way more than ChatGPT. And I hate myself for it because I was like, this is going to be uh, the Google killer. And then Google come out with like Bardy. I'm like, ah, oh, done. It's fucking good. <laughs> so annoyingly <laughs> good. And I've been using it. Like I, I did a quick tweet on it yesterday that you can use it for like really cool things. Like pronouncing people's names, right? That's one of the things when you're a podcast host, really hard because people come on, you're like, oh, what's your name? How do I pronounce it? And one of the cool things about Bard is like, you could just give it things and have it speak those things back. And so it has like the audio, it will be multimodal at some time where you put imagery and video and all of these different things. And so I think where where we are is like, we are on the AI is overhyped portion of this, like, you know, roller coaster ride. Like everyone is like, oh, maybe this is overhyped. We're going to get into that. Some of the reasons why people feel mm-hmm. that way. But I think this is a paradigm shift. It is going to touch all people all around the world, touch all jobs around the world. Uh, I think it's just maybe going to happen in like a, you know, it's not going to happen within a year. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. got carried away in terms of like how quickly all this change is going to happen. I think there's something about any product. I think we thought AI was different, but it's not. Any product, the more you use it, the more you discover the bugs, discover the issues, discover the design flaws, like you discover the limitations and like, I think we've all had enough 
access to these models now that the magic has worn off a little bit, right? Like right. it's still magical in some ways, but we're starting to like hit the edges of like, oh yeah, it's going to take some time before it can really t- do like the next level of work that we all want it to do. Linus, do you like see that or Kieran, like what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I agree to part, but I also think what's happening is that even within the users of these tools, like you're starting to see a subdivide where you got like a power law distribution where Mm -hmm. 20% of the users are already so damn good at it that they don't mind that, you know, the magic is gone because they're already doing so much more complex things with the tools that for them, it's still magical. But then you have kind of the bell curve in the middle where a normal user would be like, yeah, I mean, I've generated some stuff, but then I'm like, ah, you know, I can see straight away that it's AI content. And then you have the laggards that are like still thinking that it's very magical and they're still doing the, you know, generate me a 15 bullet list, whatever. I do think that it's easy here to kind of get blown away by the simple things, but forget like how much you can do with the actual APIs that you can just send something in and it can code for you. It can, you know, it can generate, it can compress, it can transform, it can translate and then give you stuff back. And you can do this in kind of endless permutations. Like it's not one to one, you can have like 20 things happening at the same time. And I just think that at the the application level, like the stuff you can build with these tools, that is where the magic is. And like the fact that we can interact with ChatGPT is very, very cool. And I think this has opened up, you know, the conversations that are taking place right now. But I think the real power lies beneath that, like at the API level, the things that you can actually string together by using these platforms. Right. Yeah, that's where I think, and that's where I see no hype dying down. I do see the hype dying down in this consumer facing products. Right. Except Bard. But let's just be honest, Bard is f-ing great. It's great. It's so good. Damn you, Google. You were so angry about it. It's like, I love it's uh, an ongoing joke here. Because I was like, it was such a good take. Google's, I still think they're, you know, their kind of market position is somewhat diminished because there are, when they were the premium blue link search engine, they were so far ahead of everyone else. There was never going to be any real competition. In the chat space, I will say that Bard AI is just, I just find myself using it all the time. Mm-hmm. But they have comparables. Like you can use OpenAI. There's another one called Perplexly or something like that. Yeah. And like you can use some of these others and it's like not too dissimilar. And so I still think the level of competition is much higher in that chat space yeah. than it is in the search space. I do think the unique position of Google is the fact that they have their knowledge graph. And, right. Oh, you know, it's, the multimodality is also something that we will start seeing in every player. Like we know, you know, obviously ChatGPT was shown off with multimodality during its reveal. But what do you think those big multimodal use cases are, Linus? I think you've shared some of these, but like give people who are not an expert in AI, like how is the yeah. multimodality like actually going to change their day-to-day work? So, so I think the, the simplest way to look at this is like, if you look at the chat interface like ChatGPT right now, it's like you are talking to a blind person. It can see your text because it's reading the text and it can react to that and, and give you some content back. But for example, the moment it can take an image as an input, it's like giving the model eyes. So up until that point, the AI model wasn't able to see the world. But once it can consume images, like using object recognition through OCR, the AI all of a sudden is becoming accustomed to the world around us in a different way. It might be trained on that already in its data set, but it's not the way that we are interacting with the models. So in the combination of like being able to consume images as input, but also create images as output, the things that we're going to be able to do are just like they're growing exponential on the tree. You can imagine just like posting an image of five ingredients and asking, hey, what can I cook with this? And then you get like a bunch of different suggestions back. 
Or you can imagine posting an image of like some, you know, blemish on your skin and ask like, is this potentially skin cancer? And the model comes back saying like, that's like actually 40% plausible. You should see a doctor. So yeah, I think that's going to be huge. And then obviously audio already works, but not natively because it takes audio and turns it into a transcript and then sends the transcript. So once we have native audio and native like image recognition, these models are truly going to become multimodal. Yeah, like yeah. some of the best examples of Bard doing this. So someone uploaded a screenshot of an iPhone app. So it created the iPhone app for them from the screenshot. <laughs> Same with the website. So that's an example of like text to code. Someone uploaded an image of a, like a meal. I think you mentioned this. And it said like, tell me how to cook this meal. And it give it the instructions and all of the ingredients they needed to get acquired, like cook that meal from an image. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, RIP, all of these kind of like recipe sites that you go to and they're like, <laughs> oh, you know, my life story is blah, 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 blah. And then right at the bottom, it's like, here's how you cook the carbonara, like three eggs, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Like, but before that, there's a novel, right? Because Google need a lot of text. The other one you mentioned is like in the medical sphere. Mm. Like there's a really good example of someone uploading a CT scan mm-hmm. of a brain and the BARD AI diagnosing that and given like, you know, any of the issues that I had seen. And so like on the health space, it, that multimodal is going to be really huge. And I also think, okay, we are not here yet, but being able to like easily incorporate voice and video into your customer experience from like text, like being yes. able to like go through an onboarding experience. Now, there, the thing I will say is, and I, you know, I know because I invested in the company that was trying to do this and I don't don't think they got very far, but like there's another example of this called Air, which is very similar to the company I invested yeah, yeah. in, which is basically trying to, you know, basically does calls through AI and like allows you to infinitely have people on your customer support or in your sales phones calling people and having conversations with them. So the example was from Telsa and it sounds like you've both seen it. Yeah. Now, what I would say is yeah. these companies are like 80% in terms of being able to like replicate what it feels like to talk with a person. And that 80% is cool, but not something any serious company would use in their business. The 20% where it actually feels like you're talking to a person and they actually can solve your customer support issue through the phone or video, or they actually can sell you something through supported video. I bet you that's like way harder to replicate and to actually do than most people think, mm-hmm. right? It's not like, hey, we went from, you know, November to today and we can actually have a real human or something that sounds like a human on a call. And in six months time, we'll probably have that person be able to replace a salesperson or a customer support person and feel like, well, it's like talk to those people on a call. I suspect it's like that extra 20% is like a lot longer. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Caleb. I think I broke the news on them because like they, <laughs> we, we talked and they had posted a video and they're like, hey, can you post a video? And I'm like, sure, I, I actually did it. see it from your Twitter feed now, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and that, and, is that, is that your like, friend? Oh God, am I just in your friend? I'm not, I actually think what they do is cool. If they're if they're raising for their seed round, I would still invest. So like hit <laughs> yeah. me up if you want to I mean, gotta finish the rest of the work. <laughs> so, I mean, to the point, yeah, you. I think you're really onto it. Like, I think the problem here is like people underestimate how hard it is to make the last bit, like the last 10% to become magical. But I think in the case of Air, what they are showing, and, and look, this is a an independent company stringing together different APIs. They don't really right. have like a large like a big own IP yet, Mm -hmm. they could end up there. But if you think about it, Google had their own kind of launch of of a phone AI calling up different restaurants, asking for open hours to kind of update the Google Maps. Mm. So they always had like the correct open hours. And this is like years ago. This is pre-pandemic. That's true. So if you're looking at the big players that can like run the models, like the inference and the audio generation 
on location in the same like data center, maybe even in the same rack, the latency drop that we will have, like the biggest issue with air is the latency, right? Because you are saying something and the response time, the wait time is uncanny. Like you're like, oh, come on, what am I talking to? Like a salesperson, <laughs> salespeople are just like in your head all the time, right? So, but if you can have that running locally in the same center with no latency, we are going to get really damn close to having an experience that's going to be very difficult for, for someone to kind of go, is this real or not? And I think the pivotal thing to think about here is that the model that runs basically the brain, let's say it's, this is running on GPT-4, what happens with GPT-5 or 6 or 7? Hmm. When we can just like eject that model and inject something new, their entire product will become better. True. Or worse. <laughs> well, yeah, Wait, we were going to talk yeah. about that in just yeah, a minute. I want to get to that in a, bit. That in yes. a second. But you see, the problem here is not time. I don't think the issue is like, will this replace people now or then? Or the issue is that this is possible. And the issue is that it's coming. And like, how do we adapt to that? If we have five years, that's great. If we have 10 years, it's even better because we can transition people off these jobs because eventually it will become so good that it will replace people. I'm in your camp that I think AI is going to replace a lot of human knowledge work in general. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. There are people who are on all camps of this. I'm in your camp. The other thing is like, I'm also in the Packy McCormick camp of like, the more you give us, the more we use mm -hmm. things. Yeah. And yes. what, what I would say about any of these new AI technologies like Air, any of these companies that are trying to basically use AI to replicate human interaction, when they get good enough, it is going to have a drastic change on business models and how mm -hmm. you can make money, how you can make money from a, a very small team of people. Like the whole economics, like Kieran and I, you, we've been saying on the show for months now that the future of our economy is more smaller businesses because yeah. AI is going to enable you to build a really productive business in areas that weren't possible before with very few people. And I think that is what's most exciting about this. It's not exciting to get like 50% more productivity for a big company. Like that's cool. That's going to happen. But like that should just be a given. The new companies that are going to get started here, I think is where the real opportunities yep. are. Yeah, for sure. We'll be right back. But let me tell you about a podcast from our network. Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, your audio destination for business professionals. Join husband and wife team Al and Leanne Elliott as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. Their audience loves the show's unique blend of theory and practice, which helps business owners and leaders simplify consumer psychology. If you enjoy learning what makes people tick, then this is the show for you. Recently, they did an amazing episode on what makes your team say yes, exploring the psychology of influence. Phil Agnew shares his rich experience in behavioral science and delves into the intricate psychology of influence. They explore the fine line between influence and manipulation, uncovering how subtle cues and messaging impact team decision-making and motivation. Whether you're a leader, marketer, or anyone interested in the art of intelligence, this episode is packed with strategies and psychological principles to understand and harness the power of yes in teams and organizations. Listen to Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture wherever you get your podcasts. The flip side of this and what you teased a minute ago is that it's not going to be a straight line journey because there's hot data out that GPT-4 has gotten worse, not better, mm -hmm. Karen. 
<laughs> you and I WhatsApp a little bit about this. Linus came on and he was kind of laughing with us about it. Like most products over time get better in terms of technology products. It's kind of unusual to have a product get worse over time. Like what's happening? What's going on with you guys? Yeah. There's some like really good stats, right? There was a study done by Stanford to look at the accuracy of GPT-4's response to math problems had decreased from 97.6% in March to 2.4% in June, which seems like a pretty pretty Ouch. big yeah. uh, decline. And then in terms of the same study found like responses that were directly executable decreased from 52% in March to 10% in June. But one of the other wild ones was that it basically it was starting to forget information that was provided to it over time. And so mm-hmm. there's a bunch of reasons for this. We can get into the reasons, but like one of the interesting things is when ChatGPT went from 3.5 to 4, there was like this real narrative online, which is anyone who kind of builds on AI or these kind of AI platforms, they're going to have their entire product. You mentioned it from your heirs yeah. point of view, like their entire product would be updated overnight and get better overnight. Yeah. But the same is also true. Like, it can get much worse. Like you are dependent upon a company's decision. And it's part of the thinking around why this may be happening is because OpenAI is trying to decrease costs. Yeah. And so they're trying to play around with some things in the back to decrease computational costs. And actually, if you look at the first kind of wave of AI companies and maybe like the first wave of AI losers, like if we kind of juxtapose the losers versus maybe the winners of the first like six to 12 months of this AI sprint, the first losers, group of losers, maybe these rappers, rapper type companies built around GPT-4 and other kind of AI platforms because they have no real control over the product, like the product experience. They're kind of dependent upon those platforms, like these writing tools, these video tools. And they also just get commoditized like really easily by copycats and actually the platforms themselves. And the actual winners have been the incumbents. Mm-hmm. Like, Mm-hmm. AI basically slapped all of the big companies yes. around the head and said like, okay, they just sat down and they went, we're going to start building again. We're going to ship, build, ship, build. Like look at Microsoft, look at Google, look yeah. at Meta. And I think it's really interesting to think about. It's funny because like, because the barrier to entry is so damn low, even the big incumbent companies can all of a sudden ship. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> They've been stuck in their old ways and it's been taking forever because they're so overstaffed. And now all of a sudden, like, yeah, you know, just in a text in, text out kind of thing. Uh, back to the whole thing that like uh, AI gets stupider. So like, I think what is about to happen, like we have to remember, OpenAI has released everything in ChatGPT and we're talking about ChatGPT here. We're not really talking about the API layer. We're not talking about Playground because like there, it's very easy to swap between what model you want to use. But in ChatGPT, it's very non-transparent what model runs. It's also very untransparent in terms of like what context window the model has. So the thing that it's starting to forget things, that was like very easily explained by the fact that they did not run the 32K token context length model anymore. In the beginning, when they released GPT-4, that's what they did. So basically, if you went in there, you could have very long conversations and it would remember most of it. And now they're using the 8K token length. So like you have way, way, way less characters that it can remember. So it will break down. Like it will only remember like 8,000 tokens, basically, as you go down the thread. But why they are doing these things, and they obviously haven't said a word, uh, and the head of product is saying that they are not making it dumber. And a lot of people that are, you know, closer to the problem are saying that, you know, they are making it harder to use, but the output is better if you know how to use it. Mm. So instead of having this simple UX where like you can just like one shot, basically, you just type one thing in and you get some good output. They are now forcing people to kind of like, hey, if you want good stuff out of this, 
you need to kind of embrace the way that we have designed this to work in the first place. They released just yesterday or the day before the ability to actually give each conversation like the system message, basically, that you can tell the chat what it's supposed to behave like and who it's supposed to be. And if there's a specific format that you wanted to answer in, so you don't have to like constantly put that as your first message when you start a new thread. So I think by design, they're trying to like showcase that this is just more than what it is. But then I think they're losing because the big win for them has been the simplicity in the UX. Mm -hmm. That it's just like, hey, it's just the chat interface. I don't need to be an expert. I just put some stuff in and I get some stuff out. And actually, I don't have to be that smart either. I just like put whatever and it gives me actually good stuff out. So I think the jury is out on this one and then we'll see like what they end up doing, if they're sticking to their ways or, or not. And the math thing, it's like, it's very specific math problems, right? Why we're talking about identifying prime numbers, like really hard computational questions. And if, you know, the way that it works behind the scenes is essentially like OpenAI has a bunch of models running in their cloud. And depending on the query, yeah, gonna switch there is like a task manager that switches between all these yeah. different models to kind of like give you the best one for the job that needs to be done. And it could be, you know, that the prime number sequencing just human reinforcement learning or something else that have made it so it's catching the wrong mm -hmm, model mm -hmm. and it using a less capable model to return the answers. We don't know. What I do find interesting, and this is the part that we talked about, is like if you're building on top of this, if you're a company using their APIs and you're building software and these things happen to your product, you're kind of screwed and there's no observability. So if you're building and you don't observe if there are changes over time, you're kind of screwed. Like all of a sudden core parts of your product might stop working and you have no way to kind of, how do I, how do I even troubleshoot this? Well, so I want to juxtapose this because I think that's a really important point. If you look at what, I think Toby at Shopify is one of our great technology product founders and leaders of our time. And if you look at what Shopify did with the launch of their Sidekick product, my understanding is that's largely based on a model that they built, not on GPT-4 or 3.5. And I guess my question to both of you is like, are we going to see companies, especially larger companies, you know, rely less on, you know, OpenAI, Claude, you know, pick a Bard, pick a model and basically build more custom models so that they do have more control. I talked to two AI founders in the last two weeks thinking about investing and both talked about building custom models. Because I think it's the that, future. Like there's been data to show that like smaller models are actually more accurate, right? Like Google actually was at Sundar. He actually said that in one of his announcements, like they were taking time to build these huge models and then they were getting outcompeted by these tiny models that were much more accurate. So I think there's something in building custom models based upon your data and you have much more control yeah. over that. And then, yeah, I don't know what you think, Lannis. I suspect there's going to be some companies that will build on open source. There will be some companies that build on open yeah. AI. There'll be some companies that build on, you know, their own kind of custom variations of those. I, I think the way I, I would like to use an analogy here is like looking at how the healthcare system is operating. So if you are, you know, you're, you're feeling sick, you go to a general MD, you go to your house doctor, right? And you ask like, hey, I got some issues here. And if he thinks, you know, you should see someone else, he will push you to a specialist. And if the specialist thinks you need surgery, you'll go up the tree and you go to see like a neuroscience. And then they, you end up at the specific point where you need to be to get your specific issues solved. Not in Ireland, just just to point out. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is, this is exactly how a Swedish person would think about a medical system because you are, it is, Sweden is renowned for incredible healthcare. I just want to like point out in Ireland, <laughs> you would be told to f off and just go 
and sort it out yourself. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Oh, look forward in the future when you're just lying in a ditch alone somewhere because they've cast you out because the hospital won't take you. Most people already want to take you unless you're like dying. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so back to the point. So I think what we can do is like we can see the general doctors as the general models that are very big and bulky and they run in the cloud, but they're very capable of taking a broad set of... of of jobs, right? They're able to, you query it with anything and it will probably be able to give you some advice. What we'll see, and I think what's going to happen really fast, we're going to see kind of these specialists, people with scalpels and the scalpels make really nice fine cuts and the big models, they're bone breakers. They're kind of like just wrecking balls straight in. And the difference are going to be that like for some jobs, you actually want the wrecking ball because you are doing maybe large data crunching or you're doing large queries that doesn't really require any domain specific knowledge. Basically, it needs to have a world understanding. Whereas like if you are Shopify, you're a Toby and you're kind of like, hey, we're building the sidekick thing and, and we have some really niche things in our product and we want it to be super good at those things. Yes, of course, you're going to make your own language model that are fine tuned and super really well right. operating for that at low cost that doesn't have the overhead of the big model that needs like NVIDIA N100 chips running in like a cloud that costs half a billion dollars to build. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, and I think this makes sense because like I, my vision for this is ultimately, and I think Apple will be the first ones to do this, is that we will have your own private LLM running on your device in the edge that is secure on an enclave that no one can touch and that has full access to all your data, but no one can interact with it except you. Yeah. I think this is where we're going. This is not a pipe dream. And I think that this is exactly what's going to happen. Maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10, but it, it will happen. Things are going to get so small and tiny that they can run on a calculator. We, we've done a ton of research into AI and Zapier because we want to constantly figure out how we can help companies make AI actionable, much more actionable for these business. We want to kind of stay away from the vaporware and just like, how can we make this AI stuff more actionable? How can we bring AI into the way people automate stuff within their business? And like, it's interesting when you see the research that customers first are still hesitant to use AI for like customer facing experiences because they're still like, they hear all this noise about these kind of AI models getting worse or better. And they're like, I don't want to have that in a place where a customer is interacting with me because I don't feel safe. And so people are using it much more for like internal things where they feel much more safer for like accelerating write-in, accelerating video production. We have some really cool automations internally where a salesperson can put a company name into a tool and it will give that person a complete readout of that company, collecting all of the data from internal systems, help sales sell much faster. And so I think this is like really important that people still don't feel as safe putting AI into like real business critical workflows into customer facing interactions. And I think we still have some way to go for people to kind of trust AI in those places. I agree with that, Kieran. And I think, uh, thank you for bringing the Zapier data to the forefront. I kind of want Linus and Kieran, I want both your perspectives on I think one of the first places we're going to see AI kind of come into the customer experience in a everyday way is going to be the website. Like you're a designer. You, mm. I'm sure built endless number of websites. <laughs> Kieran, yeah. you, your very first marketing job was managing websites. Like what the hell is going to happen to websites in this world? We haven't really talked about it. As kind of our like closing topic for today, I'd love to hear both of your take on how AI is going to change websites. Mm. This one is interesting. I got kids. I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I think we're looking at their kind of time frame. They're going to look at website stone, stone <laughs> templates. Like a stone tablet. Yeah, like a stone like tablet. Ancient. Okay. No, I mean, maybe not. I, I think 
a few things will happen, right? Like we're on the precipice of like a revolution in, in spatial computing. We are early into kind of what I, you know, intelligence instead of information. The website and, you know, the window into the internet as like a 15 or 16 inch laptop screen, that or phone, you know, half of the internet people are using it on a phone. There are going to be some interesting things happening here. Also to the point where like, Are we going to interact with UI the way that we're interacting with UI today? I personally think we won't, but I think this will be slower of a transition because like we can see that in Apple Vision Pro, they're releasing spatial computing and they're choosing to put websites and windows in front of you. They're not choosing to go all in spatial and transforming your living room into a a world of floating lava where emails pop up as a molten stone. No, no, no. They're (laughs) they're just like, take the safe route. You know, we want to want to sell this device. We, 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 you know, do what people are comfortable with. So I think website will be around, but they will radically change how they're made, how they're maintained and how they are constantly going to get updated. We're going to be in this transition period where you know, maybe, you know, people that have been with tasked with like handling websites are going to get like all the help they need from different agents doing different types of things in real time. Can imagine like most websites be very more dynamic and be more personal. I think one thing that I've been speaking about on a few pods that I'm still kind of confused to why no one has done, maybe it's too hard, but like imagine the four of us browsing the same website, but seeing four very different websites, exactly. depending on that the is, data. That, that's the immediate future. We're like, I'm starting to work on some stuff there. That's the most immediate future. Right. And you can start with simple things as copy and images could change. You don't have to change the way that it's designed and the placeholder, like how it's scaffolded. Well, and also, also, do you think there's a world where the visual website will change as you have a chat interaction on the site? So maybe we all see the same initial site, but then as you are having a conversation. I think chat interfaces are tiring, to be honest. Like if everything moves into chat, it's a pretty boring future. Yeah, so I'm talking about a hybrid where you're, you've got kind of a chat pane and, and like a visual UI, but the visual UI changes as the, the conversation evolves. If everything is going to be happening individually on every site, that's going to be so tiring. I do believe yeah. harder in the notion of like having Copilot in the operating system that Microsoft is doing in Windows, for example. And that that co-pilot have access to everything that you're doing, like any website you're browsing. Yeah. The problem is that we have this kind of like we just spoke about it. What if like these very specialized AIs that live in a specific domain that might, you know, be whatever website dot com, right? They have their own. I wouldn't be comfortable constantly talking to these different AI models also, that don't remember me. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the point you're making, which I want to make sure everybody watching the show is going to get is you're saying. One of the big things that could change websites is if we had a universal co-pilot. Yeah. If one or two universal co-pilots that we all use, whether it be from Apple, from Microsoft, from Google, whatever, but that are interacting with us across all the work that we do, have all of us. But then if you're building a website, you can tap into that infrastructure and basically customize that website based on that person's preferences, either just from a graphical user interface or as they're asking the co-pilot about things relevant to your your product or service. And that, yeah. that I agree with, that the universal co-pilot and how co-pilots in general get adopted is going to be a big impact on marketing and especially on like websites, marketing collateral, all of those things. Yeah, I also think like UI, I think technology UI will slowly fade away. Like if we're doing more things, we can all, we can see this trend that's been coming for the last decade, right? Like we have smart home speakers, 
We have voice assistants. Like the buildup for this has been gradual. But like if I'm using Alexa or if I'm using Google to order stuff, I never see the product. I just go, I need more toilet. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, magically, there's a ball, like the toilet paper arrives at my door. I've never went anywhere to buy that toilet paper, right? And, and if we're looking at like where things are going, I think only certain things will stay alive. Like fashion, I want to see what I'm buying, right? Yeah. That can't go away. But my energy provider or, you know, any utility or anything that's just like milk, I, why would I go shop for that visually? I don't know. And information as well. Like if I'm getting information in a non visual way, like non-text, if I'm getting it through audio, there's no need for a website. Like I'm just going to consume the audio. Mm-hmm. I think it's, we are visual creatures, right? So I don't think websites will go away, but I do think the medium will change a lot more than what it has done since its inception. Kieran, what's your take before we close out today's show? All right, cool. I think it's hard to imagine what the UX and UI layer is going to be in an AI first world. Like the internet completely changed how we thought about a bunch of stuff. Like AI is a similar paradigm shift. And it's kind of foolish if we think that what exists today and how we experience the web will be how we experience the web when everyone, like when AI is integrated across everything. And I think multimodal is way bigger than people think. I think it completely changes how we experience things and how we get information, give information. So I think we are going to live in a world in like five, 10 years where how we consume stuff is just so much different. Yeah, I 100% agree. All right. This has been a jam-packed show. This is going to be one of those episodes you're going to want to go back and watch a second time. Hit subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I want to personally thank Linus for joining us, giving us the deep dive, breaking our brains a little bit on some things AI-related talking about the changing GPT-4 model quality. We covered a ton of ground. We'll be back with you very soon on the next episode of Marketing Against the Grain. Bye.